This is part one of our book, I Am Gravity, titled Radical Humility. It assumes you've read or listened to the intro, The Center of Human Gravity. This is a little more impromptu than everything else you've heard or will listen to, in part because a piece of our work on humility is still under construction, at least for the book. So this isn't everything, but it is something. The epigraph for part one is from the French philosopher, political activist, and teacher, Simone Weil. Real genius is nothing else but the supernatural virtue of humility in the domain of thought. After taking the presidential oath of office in 1969, amid the atmosphere of the Vietnam War, civil unrest, and the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon turned his attention to the economy and the war. And in his first budget, Nixon proposed slashing government funding for national educational television, a cut that would jeopardize what would later be known as the Public Broadcasting Service, or PBS. At the request of PBS executives and in response to the budget of a newly elected president, a 41-year-old Fred McFeely Rogers, the children's television personality better known as Mr. Rogers at the time, sat down at a table on May 1, 1969, before the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Communications in Washington, D.C., to bargain for his future and the future of PBS. The hearing was chaired by the smart, abrupt, stubborn, connected, and slightly egotistical Senator John Pastore of Rhode Island. The senator had, as one politician put it, made his congressional bones by attacking public television. Rogers and his PBS colleagues had to make their case to a committee under pressure to slash PBS funding. And money meant viability. In fact, PBS wasn't even PBS yet. It was the two-year-old Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Fred's first job in television came as an assistant, which he said meant getting coffee and Coke for everyone, and a floor manager of music programs for NBC in New York. In 1953, he was hired to work in programming by the new, chaotic, and wildly underfunded WQED-TV in Pittsburgh. In fact, Fred's boss at NBC said he was crazy to leave NBC for them. Rogers biographer Maxwell King said all they had at the time was their imaginations. The next year, he co-produced The Children's Corner with Josie Carey, which allowed him to reach his younger audience. Rogers worked the puppets. Carey talked to the puppets and hosted the show. Then in the early 60s, Fred made his first appearance as Mr. Rogers on a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation show called Neighborhood. As his experience grew, so did his aspirations. He earned his divinity degree in 1962, and at his ordination, the Presbyterian Church asked him to serve children and families through television. Soon, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on PBS was born. For Rogers, funding meant children's mental health, a chance to heal the issues of the day for a much wider audience and his own creative ambitions. So as the hearing wrapped up its final day, and according to Pastore, an incredibly disappointing waste of time, and with less than 10 minutes left in that meeting, the lead PBS executive finished his opening statement and then slid the microphone across the table to Rogers.
In Boston, they prefer Fred Rogers to Superman, I Spy, Batman, Thunderbird, even Perry Mason and Merv Griffin. Mr. Rogers estimated 99,600 homes with kids 2 to 11 represents a third of that audience. The show reaches an estimated 113,000 homes for an overall rating of four and a share of 10. Mr. Rogers is produced by Pittsburgh WQED-TV. Now, Mr. Rogers is certainly one of the best things that's ever happened to public television, and his Peabody Award is testament to that fact. We in public television are proud of Fred Rogers, and I'm proud to present Mr. Rogers to you now. All right, Rogers, you got the floor. <laughs> Senator Pastore, this is a philosophical statement and would take about 10 minutes to read, so I'll not do that. Uh, one of the first things that a child learns in a healthy family is trust, and I trust what you have said that you will read this. It's very important to me. I care deeply about children. My first children... Will it make you happy if you read it? In nine words and two seconds, Pastore changed the entire atmosphere of the room and the trajectory of the conversation. Pastore lived by a law of social physics. An object at rest tends to stay at rest or if in motion stays in motion, unless acted upon by an outside force. He knew exactly how to use political force to change the speed and trajectory of people like Rogers and their proposals. Competence alone couldn't prepare Rogers for this moment. His BA in music composition and day-to-day -day focus of songs, puppets, and children, brilliant as it was, would not be enough for budget-shifting discussions with D.C. power brokers. And you need humility in your bones before you can trust it under pressure. And there's this basic psychological concept in those moments we all have, the space to choose between stimulus and response. And on paper, it's true. In theory, it's true. But on paper, time stands still. And so there's time to think it through, examine the pace, map your response. But in the flash of a synapse, in the flash of would it make you happy if you read it, the space between stimulus and response isn't as wide as it appears. And all you have is who you are, your psychological and social habits, not a list of behaviors or a set of steps or a mode or a map or a grid, assuming a planned, orderly, premeditated conversation. And if you get the mentality of humility right, if it's robust enough, intense enough, centered enough, behavior follows instinctively and automatically, not perfectly, but with much better odds. And so with the fate of PBS, his show, and the mental health of children hanging in the balance, it's Roger's turn to reply. I'd just like to talk about it, if all it's right, all right. Sir. Okay. My first children's program was on WQED 15 years ago, and its budget was $30. Now, with the help of the Sears Roebuck Foundation and National Educational Television, as well as 
all of the affiliated stations. Each station pays to show our program. It's a unique kind of funding in educational television. With this help, now our program has a budget of $6,000. It may sound like quite a difference, but $6,000 pays for less than two minutes of cartoons. Two minutes of animated, what I sometimes say, bombardment. I'm very much concerned, as I know you are, about what's being delivered to our children in this country. And I've worked in the field of child development for six years now, trying to understand the inner needs of children. We deal with such things as, as the inner drama of childhood. We don't have to bop somebody over the head to make him, to, to make drama on the screen. We deal with such things as getting a haircut or the feelings about brothers and sisters and the kind of anger that arises in simple family situations. And we speak to it constructively. How long a program is it? It's a half hour every day. Most channels schedule it in the, in the noontime as well as in the evening. Uh, WETA here has scheduled it in the late afternoon. Could we get a copy of this so that we can see it? Maybe not today, but I'd like to see the program. I'd like very much for you I'd to like see. I'd like to see the program itself, or any one of them, you see. We, we made 100 programs for EEN, the Eastern Educational Network, and then when the money ran out, people in Boston and Pittsburgh and Chicago all came to the fore and said, we've got to have more of this neighborhood expression of care. And this is what, this is what I give. I give an expression of care every day to each child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger, much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. And for 15 years, I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. <laughs> well, I'm grateful not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control which I feel that the children need to know is there. 
and it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children do, doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady, and a boy can be someday a man. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> When I first saw Rogers ask to read the lyrics, I thought, who doesn't try to close the deal after the goosebump signal? Who in the moment thinks that is the strategically smart thing to do with a group of senators in a hearing that's running out of time or maybe has even gone a little over time? And the answer is Rogers. Rogers' gravity, his radical humility. And don't confuse, by the way, his quiet demeanor with humility. Humility is not a personality type. It doesn't matter if you are ENTJ, ISFP, red, yellow, blue, green, whatever personality type or theory you subscribe to. But his humility pulled Pastore closer to center, where curiosity and openness and the truth can breathe. Rogers' humility centered his emotions on the bigger picture, not just closing the deal, but converting another human being to the truth, to a better way of thinking, to something morally superior. And before we go on, let's ask, is the drama of the PBS hearings unrelatable? Does it seem too big for your tiny team or the off-Broadway stage you're on? Because packed into that 7-minute, 19-second conversation is everything you see in any given week. Politics, power plays, personality clashes, emotional intensity, awkward silence or no silence at all, improv, meetings that go sideways, conversations that do not guarantee agreement or even understanding, reputations that preceded you and them, Big decisions, competing agendas, interruptions, egos, unifying the divided, moving the uninspired. And so, let me give one more long sentence here. Changing minds, reacting to the unexpected, reading your audience, decisions that go your way or don't, revolutionary ideas presented to stationary thinkers, hidden agendas, make-or-break budgets and deadlines. Small windows to say big things, to stand out or get left out, 
outside forces always test what's inside. Always. Pastore had the political grounds, the Vietnam War, a struggling economy, to cut the budget or postpone the decision. He didn't. Despite what may have been Rogers' split-second instinct to match Pastore point for political point, which would be overconfidence or the right of center, or cave in and hope for a morsel of financial mercy, which would be underconfidence a little to the left, he didn't. Rogers was not a naive nice guy who lacked the credentials to be in the room with Pastore. He was ready intellectually and technically, but the crucial turning point in the meeting had nothing to do with either of those qualities. Rogers' pivotal reply to Pastore's opening sarcastic question, would it make you happy if you read it, was a brief, centered, I'd just like to talk about it if that's all right. He didn't square his shoulders and plow through a script or Pastore. With no political clout or strings to pull, Rogers wanted, he needed influence, and for that he needed to talk. His instinctive response, as innocuous as it may seem, defined more than the final five minutes and 54 seconds of that meeting. It defined his next three decades. Roger's center of gravity kept the intensity of the elements he suddenly and desperately needed. Bravery, humility, passion, ingenuity, hope. Perfectly adapted to withstand Pastore's wave of ego and political ploy to shift the momentum and the money in PBS's favor. And even if Rogers didn't walk away with the budget, what chance did he have playing the game the same way Pastore started it? And the life-changing irony of gravity is that when we're focused on the elements of gravity, and in this case, radical humility, we don't care how quote-unquote confident we are. We just are. And one of the early ways we tested our theory of humility was to invite 150 people into a room to play a highly competitive zero-sum game, though they didn't know that's what they were about to play. And we primed them to play with one of three different mentalities. The first mentality was the control group. It was neutral. We had them answer some questions and read some quotes on architecture and ambiance of a room and how it affected performance and then to write a short essay on that. The second group was primed with a mentality of confidence. So there were quotes on confidence, a few questions, and they were invited to write a short essay on how confidence helped them win in life and in their career. And then the third group was invited to do the same thing, write a short essay after reading some quotes and answering some questions on humility and how humility had helped them win and succeed in life and at work. The group that was primed with the confidence mentality scored 21% higher in the game than those who were primed with the mentality of architecture, which is not shocking. Those with the mentality of humility scored 17% higher than those who were primed with confidence. Humility is not the enemy of competition. It is not a diet killer. And if you remember from the intro, the diet of confidence, competence, and competition. Humility isn't a nice, optional, complementary trait in case of an ego emergency 
And it is most definitely not all the synonyms. Shyness, abasement, awkward, diffidence, compliance, lowliness, simple, sheepish, backwards, that kill its reputation. Even Jim Collins, who was one of the first to discover the role extreme humility played in becoming a breakthrough leader, used some of those words. He got the concept right. He got the element right, just not some of the details, which was not his agenda going into his research anyway. Humility plays a major role in making the diet work better and sometimes work at all. So if we're going to see humility for what it is, not what we've been taught that it is, we have a 2,000-year intellectual philosophical hole to dig ourselves out of that affects the way we think and talk about humility. In his weekly corner office column, New York Times writer Adam Bryant interviewed 525 chief executives one-on-one, and he would ask questions less about competitive strategy and stock price and more about leadership and just life in general. And Bryant discovered there wasn't a single pivotal secret every leader had to know. Instead, he found something counterintuitive. In his final column, Bryant wrote, Better to understand leadership as a series of paradoxes. Leaders need humility to know what they don't know, but have the confidence to make a decision amid the ambiguity. A bit of chaos can help foster creativity and innovation, but too much can feel like anarchy. You need to be empathetic and care about people, but also be willing to let them go if they're dragging the team down. So let's go back to the line, humility to know what they don't, but then confidence to make a decision. Where did we get the idea that humility cannot decide or isn't an optimal trait to be decisive? Only if we trap humility in the long, long history of the synonyms that make it unworthy, unqualified to play hard, to play radically in the way we work. During Bryant's interview with Acumen Fund CEO Jacqueline Novogratz, she said, we think about our values in pairs, and there is a tension or a balance between them. We talk about listening and leadership. And I thought when I read that, wait, that's a tension? They're different? Accountability and generosity, humility and audacity. Then she says this, you've got to have humility to see the world as it is, but the audacity to know why you're trying to make it different, to imagine the way it could be. Well, you don't turn off one to do the other. They coexist. They run simultaneously. Audacity or bravery and humility are different even in our own model of gravity, but they are not counter to one another. They're cohesive. In fact, here's an analogy. In forging iron to form steel, small adjustments change iron's physical characteristics. Single-digit percentages of an added element, like tungsten or chromium, as little as 2%, are the difference between the steel of a butter knife, a surgeon's scalpel, or the suspension cables that secure the Golden Gate Bridge. And in search of stronger, brighter, or tougher material, engineers didn't look for an entirely new core substance. Faced with 
new demands, science discovered combinations that made steel even stronger. And what works in the furnaces of steel mills also works in forging the elements of gravity. And the true characteristics of humility are not just a cure for overconfidence, arrogance, or some Trumpy version of narcissism. Humility is the antidote to everything from pre-presentation nerves to irritating self-consciousness to paralyzing self-doubt. And that version of humility, undiluted, radical humility, is the purest, anti-ego, insecurity-free kind of pure confidence. One of the goals of our study was to get at the strongest mentality of every element. Remember from the intro, that means not its opposite, or more lethally, its counterfeit. And in this case, humility. So let's go back to the zero-sum game experiment and the mentality that makes humility. Three key beliefs we used to switch the mentality in the experiment and that run the mentality of humility are one, I'm brilliant and I'm not which is the basic idea that everyone is accomplished and unfinished, talented and average, wins and loses, average and great. Not or, and. The second is, there is beauty in being, quote-unquote, small. Knowing that we are in a bigger orbit than ourselves gives us the perspective to make the biggest difference we can with the talent and resources and circle of influence we are in. So, for example, in the case of our book, what would this book be, or nearly any nonfiction book, without the research of hundreds of other people? And in our case, the people willing to participate in our long interviews, 8,000 surveys, Everyone along the way who taught us to write, think, and ask questions. This book is a creation of thousands, not two. And that makes us feel small in the biggest way possible. And then the last belief was equal to everyone, better than no one. Which meant wiping away the separation and comparison of things like titles and degrees, demographics, hierarchy, so none of that useless separation, mostly, as human beings interferes with the way we work together. But the real test of humility isn't an experiment in a classroom book or workshop. It's where humility meets competition. The social, emotional intensity of a meeting or a conversation when things are unexpected or unrehearsed. So let's go from experiment land in paper and books and studies to real life again. Five months ago, a little like the one 50 years ago with PBS, the United States Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on artificial intelligence and invited three experts in the field to testify because there is some concern that things they thought were 30 to 50 years away are only a few years away. And that's a little unnerving. And to get their perspective on what the country can do, what the government can do to make sure that artificial intelligence doesn't roll out of our control, they invited three experts, Christina Montgomery, Chief Privacy and Trust Officer for IBM, 
Gary Marcus, Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Science and Psychology at NYU, and Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI. And about an hour into the meeting, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy set up a doomsday scenario hypothesis and then asks each of the panelists what they would do to prevent that scenario. And he's pretty aggressive about it. He wants concrete answers. He wants specifics. He doesn't just want generalized concepts or talking points he's already heard. So he starts with Christina, and she gives what appeared to be more talking points, at least generally. So he quickly moves past her to Gary. And Gary gives some smart, concrete answers. But then there's a point where Gary kind of wanders into a concept, and either out of a lack of interest in the concept or in the interest of time or both, Senator Kennedy interrupts him and turns to Sam Altman, and almost in a way of, come on, boy, let's see what you got, gives Altman the floor. And this is Sam's response. He defined models to be more trustworthy. Because I'm only here from Mr. Altman. Mr. Altman, here's your shot. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Number one, I would form a new agency that licenses any effort above a certain scale of capabilities and could take that license away and ensure compliance with safety standards. Number two, I would create a set of safety standards focused on what you said in your third hypothesis as the dangerous capability evaluations. One example that we've used in the past is looking to see if a model can self-replicate and self-exfiltrate into the wild. We can give your office a long other list of the things that we think are important there, but specific tests that a model has to pass before it can be deployed into the world. And then third, uh, I would require independent audits. So not just from the company or the agency, but experts who can say, The model is or isn't in compliance with these stated safety thresholds and these percentages of performance on question X or Y. Can you send me that information? We will do that. Um, Would you be qualified to, uh, to, to, uh, if we promulgated those rules, to administer those rules? I love my current job. Cool. Are there people out there that would be qualified? We'd be happy to send you recommendations for people out there. Yes. Okay. You make a lot of money, do you? I make, no, uh, I'm paid enough for health insurance. I have no equity in open AI. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. You need a lawyer. I need a what? You need a lawyer or an agent. I, I'm doing this because I love it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And that is centered, true, radical humility. No insecurity, no overconfidence. Sam was so clearly sincere and articulate and absorbed in the conversation that he changed not only the chemistry between Kennedy and himself and the panelists, but it affected the entire room. And his gravity is present throughout the entire hearing. If you watch the entire meeting, you'll see words from Altman of, that's a great idea, or we would love to collaborate on that, or I'm worried, I'm concerned. And his sincerity behind the words is so evident in the hearing that at one point Gary Marcus said, I'm not sure the cameras can quite capture Sam's sincerity the way you can feel it here. And that is the power of gravity. And humility is the hinge on which gravity swings. On the working class Los Altos Street, where a young Steve Jobs grew up, lived a widowed, somewhat scary-looking man in his 80s. Steve mowed his lawn. And one day, maybe sensing something unique in Jobs, 
or simply the added kindness that comes in the twilight of your life. The man invited Jobs into his garage for an inspired, if unintentional, lesson. Dusting off an old rock tumbler made of a small motor and a coffee can, they walked into the backyard to collect a few rocks to feed the tumbler. Placing each rock carefully inside the can with a little water and grit, they closed the lid and started the motor. And as the rocks began to rumble, Steve's elderly client invited him to return the next day. To Steve's surprise, the friction transformed the dull rocks into beautiful, polished stones. Later in life, Jobs saw that lesson as a metaphor for remaking the ugly world of technology into something beautiful. Little did he know it would be much more than that. Jobs came to see the metaphor as the process he would have to undergo to become the leader Apple needed but didn't get the first time and to save it next time. On the morning of June 12, 2005, Jobs arrived at Stanford University nervously to deliver his first and only commencement speech. His lecture revealed a story of personal reformation that shaped the revolutionary icon he became. Referencing the animated rise of Pixar and his celebrated revival of Apple, Jobs told the new graduates why he was ready for both. None of this would have happened if I hadn't been fired from Apple, he confessed. It was awful tasting medicine, but I guess the patient needed it. Sometimes life hits you in the head with a brick. Jobs' words exposed only a sliver of the tests, many of those self-inflicted, that forged him into the man who could rescue Apple. In a rare interview 10 years before his Stanford speech and 10 years after Apple kicked him out at age 30, Jobs was asked about his very publicized exit. Oh, it was very painful, he said with an acute sense of loss. I'm not even sure I want to talk about it. After a few minutes of reliving the experience, Jobs paused, briefly looking down with the deep, resurfacing sadness of 1985. I'll get real emotional if we keep talking about this, he said, and changed the subject. Jobs' biographer, Randall Strauss, wrote, Mr. Jobs had to get out of his system the idea that computing in the future would resemble computing in the past. Likewise for Jobs himself. Bitter medicine only cures if it's swallowed. Only the flying bricks we refuse to ignore make us wiser. Jobs had to be reborn before Apple could be. As it turns out, he isn't the only one. Great companies and revolutionary ideas start in garages and gray cubicles by ordinary, underfunded people who are currently ungreat. And Steve isn't a reclamation project or a historical artifact to surgically take apart. He's a man with a lesson on becoming. Gravity underwrites competence. If Jobs could have designed himself from square one as beautifully as he designed his machines, journalists Brent Schlender and Rick Tetzeli captured what he may have imagined. Quote, in retrospect, the fact that Toy Story was the beginning of Steve's professional resurrection seems preposterously appropriate. Its plot established the Pixar formula, 
a likable character is the cause of his own downfall, often as a result of hubris. But he or she, once Pixar finally made brave, overcomes weakness through kindness, bravery, quick wits, invention, or some combination thereof, and thereby earns a redemption that makes him or her an even better or more complete toy, or bug, car, fish, princess, monster, robot, mouse, or superhero. The hero's downfall, incidentally, often involves some kind of exile, as in Toy Story, where Woody accidentally sends Buzz careening into Sid's backyard and then must join him to engineer a hair-raising escape from that evil child. Parallel to Steve's own exile from Apple are obvious. Toy Story also gave Steve back his confidence. It was Steve's definition of confidence that caused the bricks and bitter medicine. Jobs needed humility and the right definition of humility. And that is, in fact, what eventually freed Steve to do his best work rebuilding Apple. And the gravity of humility depends on the intensity of your core beliefs and behaviors. So let's cover a few beliefs, what we found when we traced behavior back to the beliefs deep inside people with radical humility. And a couple of these we've covered. The first is, I'm brilliant and I am not. Everyone is accomplished and unfinished, talented and average, extraordinary and ordinary, relevant and irrelevant, right and wrong, enlightened and illiterate, magnificent and nothing at all. Two, self-interest is not self-absorption. Humility is the architect of stronger personalities, not weaker ones. Humility wipes away the pressure of pretense and the insecurity of imperfections. Three, there is beauty in being small. Knowing we're in a bigger, grander orbit than ourselves gives perspective to make the difference we can with the talent we have. There is nothing too small for us to do or too big for us to tackle. Four, cut ego, not power. Ego is exhausting fighting to protect and project an artificial, unsustainable image. Pretense destroys progress for those pretending, and the self-esteem in those who believe what the pretenders preach. 5. Ego is a virus, crueler than war, more repulsive than abuse, oppressive than poverty, or vile than terrorism, because it's the underlying poison that causes each. 6. Confidence isn't voted into existence. It is what you're left with after everything else. Degrees, awards, portfolios, titles, likes, retweets, resumes are stripped away. Leadership is best reserved for those who don't need it to validate who they are. 7. Continuous applause is an empty craving. Humility is the antidote to the thirst for popularity because everyone is accepted and rejected by someone somewhere for flaws. Admiring someone's talent doesn't dilute or delete yours. If others appear to have more, talent, prominence, IQ, money, influence, etc., or are larger than life in our view, it doesn't mean we are therefore smaller. Eight. My identity is not my idea. 
I'm more than the last good or bad idea, great or mediocre performance, win or loss. And nine, handing over hard-earned credit to someone else or fading into the background is an act of underconfidence, not humility. Humility isn't blending in or downplaying your strains. Someone else's time in the spotlight does not steal yours, and yours doesn't crowd anyone else out. And if you miss the emotional markers that your mentality slips into an opposite or, even worse, the counterfeit, and no one offers you a one-way ticket back with honest feedback, bricks, or bitter medicine, there's another way. Let's imagine a meeting that goes off-center. To hit a tight deadline on a big project, you're curious why you can't work around certain policies and processes that do not seem relevant to the project. Someone else who's been with the company for a long time says that if we make one exception to the process, then why have the process at all? So feeling the pressure and the pain, everyone jumps in, some for, some against. It just feels like red tape to you. They're taking your critiques personally. You get a little annoyed. They're defensive. A few go silent to stay out of it, even though you know they have opinions because they've told you privately. And many times throughout the meeting, different people drift off center. Just enough for counterfeits to redirect and disrupt the conversation. So you decide to table the topic until the project's finished and just deal with the bureaucracy for now. Later at lunch, with friends, colleagues, you talk about the meeting, who are, of course, on your side, and you're still feeling annoyed and impatient. The conversation vents what you saw and justifies what you did or didn't do. It feels good to decompress and changes nothing. But something's going to happen after work that has a chance to change everything, at least for you. That chance appears when no one's around, on your commute home, at the gym, in the shower, over a glass of wine. When your actions aren't in sync with your potential, people with even an ounce of self-awareness feel a universal, distinct set of emotions, uneasy, incongruent, perplexed, disheartened, unsettled, even guilty. And the reason these emotions show up like Scrooge's Christmas ghosts is because counterfeits betray who you are, never leaving a true impression of what you do best. So embrace the discomfort and the unsettled emotions long enough to fix what's wrong, but never enough to beat yourself up. You're seeking progress, not perfection. And while early is definitely better, only never is too late.